HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. This is another episode. I'm on today with John Chester of Apricot Lane Farm in Southern California. Welcome to the show, John. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, I heard you just had a new baby. We did. Uh, he's new. He's a he's a year old now, um, oh. and it's the best. So maybe that means I can get a tour of your awesome farm now. Yes. Now that that's out of the way, we'd love to have have you out here. That would be great. Um, let's talk a little bit about your operation, which is quite unique. I think you might be the either one or two only biodynamic citrus farms in the United States. Wow, that's great. I know we are one of few. Um, so we're a, we're a 213-acre organic and biodynamic farm. We grow about 80 varieties of stone fruit um, and citrus and avocado included in that 80 varieties. Um, we have about 1,500 um, animals, uh, cows, sheep, pigs, chickens, uh, ducks, guinea hens, um, and I'm sure I'm leaving. Oh, we got a couple of horses that do some, uh, they do the moving work for us or with us. Um, and we're uh, fully integrated, um, which means we have animals interacting uh, with the orchards um, uh, year-round. Uh, we're moving animals through, through the crops where um, possible. So one of the big things that you notice if you spend some time in Southern California is that there's an almost sterile environment underneath the citrus trees. And citrus obviously take a lot of water and are a virtual monoculture in many places. Can you talk about your goals in managing the understory of your citrus and other orchards and some of the things you've learned from experimenting in, which is, like, not very commonly done, um, having a living understory? Right. So everyone knows we're in one of the worst droughts in probably the last 50 years here, uh, over the last five to seven years. Um, we grow grass under our, our uh, orchard trees. Um, not only grass, but we also allow weeds to grow. 
Um, we try to manage it from the standpoint we uh, will start seedlings uh, or grasses that are usually in the 14 to 16 inch range. And then over time through grazing, we can kind of eliminate species of grasses that maybe grow taller that would block out sprinklers. But other than that, we want the ground covered. And a lot of people say, hey, well, that's going to take a lot of water to get grass established. And in the beginning, like the first six weeks to three months, yes. But once you've got that understory developed, you know, you have more porosity in your soils because you have the root base of the grasses, um, which is obviously feeding all the microbes, you know, the fungal colonies and the bacterial colonies. Um, And that ultimately leads to uh, soil that holds a lot more water and is regenerating its nutrients versus um, having to rely on adding inputs. Um, So you're sort of mimicking the system as if we were in a a more uh, lush forested area of the country, but we're we're not. We're essentially in like sort of the desert out here in California. Um, But by creating that system, you you rely on water a lot less. At least that's what our... um, findings have been. We've, we've cut back our water use by 35%. We're 35% under our allocation for local um, aquifer use. Um, and that has um, something that's sort of established over, over time. Um, we got three inches of rain here like two weeks ago. And so that was you know, on 213 acres of ground. That's about 17 million gallons of water. We saw no runoff in our orchards, no runoff in our pastures, which mean, meant all that water went into the ground. And we have soil probes that measure that. And over the years, it's gotten better and better. And we're at five feet complete saturation within just a few hours of a rain. Um, so I think it's really starting to show its effectiveness in the fight, you know, against the, or in reducing water use and also kind of creating that flywheel effect in the environment here that we're creating. Wow, living soil. What a concept. Uh, <laughs> it's a wonderful so there's thing. A water, <laughs> there's a whole water reality. There's the soil life and the living organism of the soil. Can you talk about how you've been reviving, again, looking around the landscape of citrus, monoculture, mostly chemical, uh, chemically managed down there, and a lot of it is high input. So if it's organic, maybe it's stuff from the ocean, like fish meal or feather meal or soy meal or a combination, uh, alfalfa meal, uh, blood meal, seaweed, or animal manures, and the conventional guys are doing urea and synthetic inputs. Let's talk about your fertility management program and how, you know, how did you how did you take those trees organic? What was the process of conversion? Well, I think the first thing we did is establish a cover crop. No, no ground should be uncovered. Um, I mean, we practice biodynamics, but what really we focus on are what tools do we need from permaculture biodynamics, holistic, organics. What tools can we pull from those toolbox to farm the land in a regenerative way? How can we kick off that flywheel effect where the soil starts to develop the nutrients that the plant needs, requiring less inputs from us long-term? Whether you're conventional or farming in a holistic way or regenerative way, the resources that we're all relying on are finite. Um, and the repercussions of using pesticides, as, you all, as we all know, is, is, is that we are destroying the predator colonies and the beneficial insects that help make farming a lot easier. Um, I think for us, we focus obviously on the kelp meal and the fish meal, um, potash and those types of inputs. But for us, what we really want to make sure that we're doing is, is keeping track of planting beneficials and creating enough diversity on the farm to make it so that we don't have to rely on not only those inputs, but also on those, 
those, uh, even the, conve- the uh, organic sprays that we are allowed to use. Um, I hope that answered your question, but it's sort of like, it's, it's sort of like triangulating in on all of those things together um, helps us to, um, you know, promote the direction of the farm. Totally. Well, and kind of another practical question, a lot of, a lot of young farmers who are getting involved in uh, cider and orchardry and doing, you know, mixing in animals underneath their perennial crops are contending with some of these rules surrounding animal manures in the proximity with horticultural and tree crops. Um, do you want to just give us a little bit overview of what your what the rules are and how you cycle your animals through in a way that doesn't run you into trouble with your pickers or your um, food safety? Uh, like, are you guys GAP certified? Question mark. No, we're not GAP certified. Um, we've actually decided not to become GAP certified because uh, the way GAPS reads is that you have to remove birdhouses. Um, from your uh, orchards, um, you, uh, it doesn't look uh, very kindly on moving animals through your orchards. Um, they don't like poop, basically. They don't like poop, but it's a scary thing because when we look at what people have, been, uh, what people have gotten sick from when it comes to orchards, it's not from listeria and E. coli coming from the animals. It's normally the pickers not washing their hands or somewhere at the packing house that fruit being touched by someone that didn't wash their hands or... Um, so I think to, to blame nature for these problems and this, this type of biological diversity or this approach of biological diversity to farming is a really dangerous thing that's making us more and more reliant on something that um, ultimately has been more of, I think, the culprit in these things. Um, so I don't think, even though we were told um, that if we did gaps, we would kind of like be able to like break the rules here and there, I felt like us being a part of that was just really going to end up being us sort of saying that it's a valid form of health um, uh, food safety. And I don't think it is. I think it sort of misses the mark, and it's a PR thing, in my opinion, um, by you know, larger operations that are trying to promote this image of safety, but they don't really understand the true... Um, they don't really understand what's happening out there biologically and, the, and I think the negative impact that that could have on farming and soil uh, regeneration. Man, I'm so, gl- I'm so glad you're so close to Hollywood. You've got so many people to influence with an integrated system mimicking nature. Wow. How are you explaining and interpreting what your actions are there to the greater public? What's your marketing flank up to? What's, uh, can, you, can you maybe answer that in a different way? I asked that in a different way. I didn't quite understand. Yeah. What's your communication strategy as a farm, given your proximity to this massive number of people in Los well, Angeles and your experience in the Hollywood background? We have a really, we have a really active Facebook following. Um, we also are, are a regular contributor to uh, this um, wonderful Emmy award-winning series uh, called Super Soul Sunday uh, that's uh, hosted by Oprah Winfrey. We contribute uh, stories about the farm to that series. Um, those things can be found online or on our, our website page. Um, so we do a lot of communication through apricotlanefarm.com and Facebook um, and Twitter, and then we're doing more and more uh, events here, educational events here on the farm where we're touring people through and sort of, you know, showing them what we've learned. Look, we, we, we're trying to be very honest, too, about the things that are working, the things that are not working. We haven't been doing it that long, so we're, we're not experts, but we're willing to try things um, 
you know, with our own sort of moral compass in mind about what matters to us, and that is, like, do no harm to the land, do no harm to the animals, um, and make it sustainable for the human beings. The only time I feel like sustainability is really valid is when you talk about whether it's sustainable to you as a human being. Like, can you do it financially? Can you do it mentally and physically? Other than that, we should be focused on regeneration. So what do people think when they come, and how, how are you interacting with the public? Well, it's great. I think, I think people are really inspired, and more importantly for us, they're encouraging because this is really hard, and this is why people don't farm in this way. Um, but it doesn't mean that it's not worthwhile, um, and I think that people are seeing that, and I'm finding that it's, you know, it's becoming more and more of a thing that young, smart young people want to be involved in, and that's what brings me a lot of hope. Um, you know, I think we focus a lot on the question about can this method of farming feed the world, and I think that unfortunately is a, is a question that intentionally or unintentionally is confusing the real issue, and that is can our methods of farming in, in large-scale agricultural terms sustain and be something that could feed the world without repercussions that we may not be able to reverse? That's the more important question. While that question is being researched and, and vetted, we need to be trying other methods that go back to the four billion years of success that the Earth has had in providing a life for us. And we need to explore those deeper and understand those systems, because we don't. And that is something that should be supported. And we're seeing a lot of young people be inspired when they come out and do these tours and end up, you know, working on this farm um, who want to get into farming on their own someday. So it's been really great. Well, I just... You know, it's super clear to me, looking around in Southern California, particularly at the citrus industry, which is, you know, pretty static and relying heavily on a set of institutions that were built uh, at the turn of the century, starting at the turn of the century with the introduction of the Washington Able into Riverside County through a massive uh, buildup of cooperative, cooperative insectaries, uh, cooperative packing, cooperative marketing with Sunkist. Um, a lot of it, university extension research for varieties and cultural practices. And now you have this sector, a large um, sector, which really represents many of the qualities and characteristics of other sectors um, in agriculture that is practically a monoculture and is producing a product that's exported, processed, and ultimately results in, you know, low-quality orange juice cheaply on the world market. And as we're looking at where to find opportunity for young people, your farm really seems to make a lot of sense in experimenting with a bunch of different crops and thinking maybe beyond the water-thirsty citrus into more drought-tolerant varieties, into more direct market, into higher value. And I noticed you guys make a lot of jams and jellies and sauces and stuff. Um, can you reflect on what some of those crops are that you're looking at that might be more relevant uh, in a drought, an ongoing drought context, than this thirsty citrus is? I would love to, to be able to answer that question, but that's something that I think, you know, I'm just at the beginning of trying to understand. You know, I think people say, well, sometimes I'll, I'll, they'll say, hey, you know, how do you feel about using all the water out here, you know, to farm in this way, you know? And, with, with where you are, and I'm like, you know, I, I, I agree. It's a bad idea, but so is building Los Angeles, California, with 9 million people out here in the desert to feed. 
I, you know, we're kind of in this together. How do we make it something that, you know, is more sensible while we move more towards drought-tolerant um, farming? I think years ago they basically just graze, you know, they dry farm cattle and uh, graze, you know, uh, hay and, and uh, apricots out here. And then when they had the electricity and the ability to drill wells, it sort of turned into this. Um, I don't think that question has been asked uh, enough until recently. So I, I don't really even know how to answer the question other than our decision-making is, is really how to do it with what we've got at this point and make it efficient and make it a priority. I'm voting for carob myself. I think carob, carob has a, a lot one? of potential. Because we're starting to get into carob trees. Are they really drought tolerant? Super drought tolerant. Better than olives. And they are making a beautiful food that you can use instead of chocolate. And all these, you know, as everybody in Los Angeles becomes a raw vegan, we're going to need some new tree crops to support the population of nutrition bar eaters. Well, that's great. And a lot, and our, some of our stone fruit, fruit varieties can essentially be dry farmed, you know, after they're established. Um, and that's where we're, we're heading now, and that's something we're, we're able to do. We're able to shut the water off for a month and a half at a time, you know, um, and that's, that's been really cool to sort of see and make that transition. And we've, you know, we've taken out probably 50% of our avocados and citrus trees to really focus on more drought-tolerant type plants, but also plants that just make more sense for the climate here overall. Um, so one of the things that's really concerning right now in Southern California is the area-wide spraying of poison to manage invasive pests. Um, this is something I've been researching a lot lately, and it's something that other parts of the country don't know about, haven't faced. Um, other parts of the country don't have quite such a strong lobby trying to get regulations in place like we have in California for the Department of Agriculture to be able to mandate spraying of, of, of poisons or of insecticides on private land. Um, can you just summarize a little bit what that what's going on and how it affects organic farmers like yourself. Are you speaking about the Asian citrus psyllid? Yes, I am. Okay, so the, the mandatory ACP sprays are for all citrus growers um, in, in, in California, especially here in Southern California. Um, and we have, obviously, a tremendous lemon, um, an orange crop uh, in our area. Uh, so there's uh, countywide, at least, mandatory sprays. We are under organic uh, regulations, so we have a, a more mild version of that spray that we have to spray more often. Um, but their plan, uh, after seeing the ACP, which causes the HLB virus uh, in, in citrus uh, plants, um, they've never actually had a case of HLB uh, started here in the county, but there's been trees that were brought in from, say, like Mexico or something that had HLB. The ACP spreads the HLB, but they've never been able, again, to prove that HLB could actually, you know, break out here. But we're all scared that if it does, then it would be the end of citrus as we know it because this happened in, uh, in Florida. There are a lot of unknowns. The, the problem is, is that with the mandatory spraying, we're destroying our earthworm, ladybug, and bee, bee populations. Um, the, the, the conventional sprays for ACP will kill those, those three on contact and also other predator insects that may even um, uh, attack the ACP. So in the process of trying to eliminate something, we're destroying the biology that could balance it and regulate it. 
Um, what's the right answer? It's a really tough one. I understand someone needing to protect their livelihood, um, but I guess we all have to sort of say at what cost and where is it really making sense. Um, we have noticed uh, a drop in our, we, uh, we lost about five hives in the last few months um, after a countywide spraying. I've had other, even some conventional farmers down the road have hives. They lost some of their hives. Um, so is that connected? I, I can't see any other thing that's, that's, that's come our way that could be, but it's, um, it's something we're concerned about. I think we're, you know, we're kind of riding off the rails on spraying a lot, and I think people are starting to kind of question whether or not it's worth it. But, again, I, I don't know what the answer is. My gut is that we need to figure out another method because this one is really not working. We're not really able to control ACP in this way. We're just kind of knocking it back, and it keeps coming back. Well, one of the awesome things about Southern California is that the highly organized citrus industry supported a highly organized insectary and um, integrated pest management community. And that, since the 1920s and 30s, has been developing natural pest control using predator insects that you have been mentioning. And so there's actually a lot of expertise in Southern California about insect populations and how they operate you know, how much buffer they need, how much nectar they need, where they move between the chaparral mm-hmm. and the wildlands and in the domestic lands, you know, which kinds of pests overwinter in the oleander, et cetera, et cetera. And so right now the way the IPM community is looking at this spraying is to notice that there's now kind of a panic in the grower community and there's a lot of overspray. Yeah. And that overspray is definitely entering into the watershed, the uh, Riverkeeper in Santa Barbara has been monitoring streams for about 15 years. They've never found um, as much runoff of, of imacloprid, which is a neonicotinoid that kills, as you say, bees, but has also been shown to really negatively impact uh, bird populations. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely consensus that the poison that's being sprayed has impacts across the ecosystem, and it hasn't been tested on infant populations for safety. So, you know, there's have been environmental health lawsuits launched against the CDFA, against this 2014 ruling that CDFA got to be able to spray this 79 different poisons. Um, and it seems like it's a little bit of a moment to get populations of consumers and people who can call their representatives enlivened um, do you think you could have a role in, in some of that mobilization? Absolutely. I mean, I think this is the year that we've really gotten our heads around it and started to see the sort of devastating effects, the reverse effects in our, um, you know, sort of micro ecosystem here. Um, and so we've really started to connect with other people that feel the same way. And I know there are some uh, grassroots efforts to try to, um, you know, get a sense of this and I think make our voices heard. Um, this, we need to modify the approach. Um, you know, we've been using beneficials too, and the CDFA claims that they're, they're doing a lot with beneficials. I don't personally feel like the numbers I've heard are high enough. I think they're minuscule. Um, but if we're going to be using, you know, predators, um, then we need to really be doing it in a real way. And we've been able to convince them to do some releases here on the farm um, but honestly, we would be willing to do a lot more than, than they're granting us. Um, yeah, I, I think there's a lot more that can be done here. 
Well, I know there's a group forming in Ojai Valley, and Ojai Valley Grange is having a really interesting set of convenings to talk about citizen action, and there's That's some lawsuits pending. So maybe we can loop you into that, and we'll keep all of you in the Greenhorn world informed of those workshops, actions, and information sessions together, because really it's our job to stop the silent spring. Absolutely. That's really well, thank great. Thank you so much for your time. I really look forward to knowing more and seeing more. And everyone who's in Hollywood, get over there and get yourself some apricots at Apricot Lane. Fantastic. Well, thanks for having us on. We're, we're big fans of the show. Thank you, John. Bye-bye, everyone. listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.